I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. It's Tuesday the 8th of December, though we're recording this on the evening of Monday the 7th. I don't think much will change between now and then, though in this pandemic and with this government, you never know. I'm speaking with Rupert Beale, a clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute, who has written four pieces for the LRB on COVID-19 since the pandemic began nine months ago, most recently in our latest Christmas issue. This is his fifth appearance on the podcast. Hello, Rupert, and thank you very much for finding the time to talk to me again. Hello, Tom. At the end of July, in our summer issue, you wrote that several strong vaccine candidates have made it to final stage clinical trials. Those trials have now finished for several vaccines and we, when I say we, I mean they or or perhaps you, are beginning to vaccinate people this week. Uh, That's unprecedented, isn't it, to be administering a vaccine for a virus that we didn't even know existed a year ago? It is absolutely unprecedented. I mean, I should say that the trials haven't stopped. They, they've reached a, a, an end point, a sort of an intermediate point, um, pre-specified when it was known or, or, or when it could be known that they were going to be efficacious. So the, the trials are ongoing and we'll get a lot more data from those trials as they progress. Um, but it, yes, it, the, the achievement is absolutely extraordinary. I think it's not just extraordinary for the speed um, though that is, you know, very notable. It's really never been done before in anything like this timescale. Uh, they're also notable for the efficacy. So, I mean, if you'd asked me to to guess, I might have been reluctant to guess, um, but if you'd really pushed me, I would have said we'll probably get vaccines which are, you know, 60 or 70%, and, and people would have thought, oh, yeah, that'll do, that's not bad. To have vaccines which are, you know, above 90% is, is really extraordinary in this time frame. So, um, like I say in the article, it's, it's difficult to conceive a sort of sufficiently um, marvellous metaphor for it. I mean, you have to sort of pick your favourites in a way. Uh, but really, this is, I mean, what you describe as the best case scenario that you could reasonably have imagined back in the spring. And two of the vaccines, the Pfizer, BioNTech, BioNTech, and Moderna, although in a sense mode RNA, I don't know how to pronounce any of these companies' names, they uh, use a groundbreaking technology that's never been used before. Is that right? They use their messenger RNA vaccines. So how do they work? That's right. Yes, I mean, messenger RNA is something that's been known about um, really since the quite early days of molecular biology, you know, since the 60s. And the concept that you could take messenger RNA and, and make a protein from it was understood more or less immediately at that point. Uh, it's their use as uh, vaccine delivery vectors, which is new. 
Um, it's, it's something that people have been previously trying for, for example, for, for, for cancer vaccines, and there may well be, you know, interest in that, um, especially now that they've been demonstrated to be effective for um, SARS-CoV-2 and infectious disease. So it's it's really the use of mRNA in this way, which is new. It's not mRNA itself. mRNA is actually a rather well understood concept in, in molecular biology. And the um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, which is made is made up of RNA. What is it about it that makes it the messenger? What does the messenger part of that name mean? Right. So you're right that SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. Uh, and it's 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 in a way related to messenger RNA, in the sense that it's the same strand, if you like, that the the messenger RNA is. So messenger RNA is called that because it delivers a message from DNA to the um, what we call the ribosome. So that's the the machinery for making proteins. So this is part of what we call the central dogma of molecular biology that DNA makes RNA makes protein. Viruses um, play all sorts of tricks with this, and RNA viruses of this particular um, sort of very generic type, what we call positive sense RNA viruses, because they're the same sense as the messenger RNA, are in a way no more than glorified messenger RNAs themselves. So uh, I, I hope I won't lose too many people when I say that sort of other viruses do this in, in the opposite orientation. So influenza is a negative sense RNA and it doesn't make proteins directly from, from its genomes. What it does is it, it copies those into the positive sense to make its own messenger RNAs and those messenger RNAs make protein. So more or less how you configure it, whether you're flu and you do it from a negative sense RNA to a positive sense, or whether you're a, a normal organism like hu- humans, <laughs> uh, where we, we have uh, DNA and we make RNA from that and, and those make proteins. The, the purpose of the messenger RNA is to make protein. And so what uh, Moderna and Pfizer have done is used this messenger RNA to make the spike protein. So they are essentially delivering that message to our cells to make the spike protein, and they deliver it in such a way that it's immunogenic. So it's not just they're making the spike protein. The context is one that the the body, as it were, mistakes for a viral infection, and so it develops the right kind of immune response to that spike protein. That's the theory, and it turns out to work in practice too. So it's it's um, you know a really great achievement in a way, basic molecular biology. But you know nothing wrong with that. And the spike protein is what there's the almost the literal spikes on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which it uses to to break into into human cells. Um, absolutely, yeah. So I suppose one question about the vaccine, the messenger RNA, it delivers, it tells our cells to make this small piece, this very small stretch of protein because it's not even the whole spike protein is it it's a it's a little piece of the spike protein is that right well it's most of the spike i mean there's all sorts of tricks and they're slightly different um yeah. forms of this so uh, I, again without going into the details sort of spike is is not just a sort of a spiky lump it's a little molecular machine in and of itself and so you sort of stabilize this in a particular form that you would want the immune system to preferentially recognize so it's 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 most of the spike protein in a way yes yeah. um Okay. And uh, you're trying to direct the immune response to what you think, and it turns out you're, you're right in this case, will be the most protective. And obviously there are two things which vaccines need to be, which the tests need to prove that they are. One is efficacious, which these are to an extraordinary, extraordinarily high degree. And the other thing is safe. 
the worries to uh, someone as ignorant as I am, I mean, I'm not worried about it. And as soon as I'm allowed to guess it, I absolutely will be queuing up. But the idea that this is it's a new form of vaccine delivery, it works in a similar way to the virus itself, that this RNA comes in and it instructs our cells to create this protein. There's a sense in which that all sounds a little bit scary. So how would you reassure people that it's really nothing to worry about? Well, in one sense, it's a new technology. But in another sense, like I say, this isn't something that's been well understood since the 1960s. So when you're injecting, you know, messenger RNA, we know that doesn't persist for for a very long time in the body. So it would be very unlikely that it could have weird long term side effects. I mean, it's not to say that you shouldn't monitor for these. Of course, one should. But it's essentially, you know, your cells are producing many millions of these uh, messenger RNAs, you know, every second. So there's no sort of special reason why an mRNA that's produced in this way should be, you know, particularly dangerous or or anything like that. So there are sort of good reasons to believe um, a priori that these vaccines would, would be would be safe. Now, the immune system can be an unpredictable beast. And of course, it, it's formally possible that you uh, vaccinate someone, you know, with a, a protein or, a, or in this case, a messenger RNA that makes protein. And that in a small proportion of people, you get some sort of weird aberrant immune response, which targets not simply the virus, but also cross reacts to some protein that's that's useful to us. Now, the expectation would be that in these large trials that have been done, you know, tens of thousands of people, if that were happening with anything other than the very, very tiniest frequency, you know, we would have seen it. It's not to say it's impossible that there could be, you know, weird side effects in a tiny, tiny minority of people. Of course, that's possible. It's not to say it's impossible. There could be long term side effects that we don't know about. But it's just extremely unlikely, given what we know about the trials so far and what's already understood about the the technology that's being used. And I I think these things are unlikely. Uh, What seems certain is that this is going to be a lot safer for you than actually getting SARS-CoV-2, which we know, you know, kills a proportion of people and, you know, does very nasty things to, to, to many others. So is it impossible that this has any side effects? Well, you know, you expect some sort of minor side effects. We've not seen anything which would be concerning. There's there's not from any of the trials that would be really concerning. And there's no good reason to believe that there would be something concerning in the future. And, you know, however you configure it, it's just an awful lot safer than the virus. So it's it's not to say that these things are impossible. It's just extremely unlikely that we're, we're going to see anything very, very nasty emerging from from the data. So I hope that reassures you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and that's especially true of the people who are first in line to get it, or certainly in the UK. Isn't that right? Because it's yes. there's been a certain amount of toing and froing about that. But if it's been given to the, the most vulnerable, those over 75, is that right? Over 80? Yes. I mean, the precise criteria... Are at the I, I, yes, I mean over eighties and care home residents are the are the top priority, and other very vulnerable groups. Uh, I've been in a call actually today with some colleagues, and we're we're wondering what the plans will be for some very vulnerable groups of, of patients with with long term sort of kidney failure, and we're sort of hoping that they're going to be prioritised. I think there's there's lots of things which are a combination of clinical priorities and logistical priorities that are going to be you know, pretty difficult to sort out in the first instance. 
and you know i guess we'll just have to to do the best we can but but yes yeah, certainly the the higher risk groups will be targeted first and of, and of course people looking after them because you, you know that the possibility of a care home worker spreading for example uh, the disease to care home residents is is clearly happened uh, in various uh, settings um with uh, with very devastating effects but we don't know yet is this right we don't know yet that the viruses prevent people being infectious for sure the vaccine right we don't know that the va- we know that it reduces symptoms and prevents symptoms in in many people reduces them in others but we don't yet have the data to show that it stops people being infectious that you could potentially be vaccinated asymptomatic but still contagious Correct. We don't we don't know that yet, but the the betting is very much that a vaccine with high efficacy would at the very least reduce the extent to which somebody was was infectious. I, I mentioned in the article this is being looked at um, directly in the uh, AstraZeneca Oxford trial, where they're doing weekly swabs. Uh, at least as I understand it, in the UK arm of that trial, they're doing weekly swabs on the participants so you would know if someone was infected asymptomatically. And in the Pfizer trial, they're looking at this, as it were, retrospectively by looking at antibodies that you would only raise to the virus that you would not raise to the vaccine. So this is being looked into. And and like I say, when we get the data, um, we'll know. But you know, you, you have to proceed with a certain amount of uncertainty, um, or else you'll you'll never go ahead. Yeah. And uh, you know, from everything we understand about this virus and other viruses and the data so far, it would suggest that prioritising health and social care workers for vaccination could be a reasonable thing to do, especially if the logistics meant that that was you know easier to actually accomplish than, for example, care home residents. But it, it, it's a finely balanced and delicate judgment. And something which is, you know, doesn't sort of lend itself to sort of um, glib policy statements, if you like. No, sure, and especially with the um, that one of the advantages of the AstraZeneca vaccine over the others is that it's um, it's logistically more straightforward as well as cheaper. Is that right? That it can be kept in a in an ordinary fridge and, and things like that. It doesn't have these doesn't have to be kept these very cold temperatures, which the the mRNA ones do. Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's a, it's a clear advantage for for those kinds of vaccines that um, you know requires sort of ordinary refrigeration, if you like, rather than very cold temperature freezers. Uh, in the case of the Pfizer vaccine, or sort of fairly cold temperatures in the case of the Moderna vaccine. And, and I should say we're quite likely to get other kinds of vaccine as well, which which may also be very helpful and may also be, you know, relatively easy to to deliver. So I doubt very much that the good news is going to be confined to these three vaccines. I think we will see others coming onto the onto the market, possibly with similar efficacy data. So again, it's you know as much as twenty 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 is miserable, we 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 can look forward to a certain amount of more <laughs> uh, good news in twenty twenty one. Yes, because I've read today that Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca, between them, will be able to manufacture enough vaccine next year to immunise a third of the global population. So is it worth we want to immunise everybody or enough people to achieve herd immunity through vaccination? We're going to need either more time or more vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. And I expect it'll be more vaccines. Um, yeah, you know, don't want to promise, and there are, <laughs> but uh, it yeah. does look likely because all of the vaccines that are on the market at the moment are coming towards it. They're all immunologically speaking working in a similar way. They're inducing antibodies to the spike protein, 
And if antibodies to spike work, then there's no reason to believe that those other vaccines wouldn't work. So it's a good situation to be in from that point of view. And in terms of so the chances of the virus out evolving the vaccine? Yeah, so this is this is a very interesting question. Uh, this virus, as I've said in, in previous articles, doesn't mutate as quickly as some others, not like HIV or influenza. It's not um, sort of already spreading out into multiple different strains. SARS-CoV-2 has been relatively stable. It's essentially still one strain with some very minor variants that don't seem to make a huge degree of difference. When you put selective pressure onto onto a virus by, for example, vaccinating a substantial proportion of people, you do potentially create the conditions where the the vaccine may may be well, the, where the virus may evolve, as it were, to be less susceptible to the vaccines. That is a possibility. Um, it's something that you know people in the UK and elsewhere will be looking into very very closely over the course of 2021. Uh, actually, not just mutations that affect the vaccine, we may also be interested in mutations that affect, you know, if we get um, other drugs that, that work, um, that, that could also be something that, that would, would need to be looked into. But it would be unlikely, I think, that you'd have, as it were, a, a very clean escape mutation from, from the vaccines. In other words, that the virus would be able to sort of develop a, a mutation or set of mutations that made it completely invulnerable to the vaccine and still able to replicate just as well. I think that's very unlikely. It's not certain because we've, we haven't seen it yet, but the, the expectation would be that it would be relatively more difficult for this virus to escape vaccines, at least to escape them completely. It's not to say that there might not be any effect. So this will be something that will be needed to, right. to, to look into, you know, very closely over the next year. And then there's a related question at the moment, a hypothetical one, which would be, OK, suppose uh, we're unlucky and you do get a strain emerging, which somehow, it, you know, is less susceptible to the vaccine. Would you be able to license a modified version of one or more of these vaccines in a streamlined way? So, for example, if you knew there was a particular mutation in the spike protein, which meant you escaped uh, to some extent from the uh, antibody-mediated immunity, you could, in principle, uh, design a, a Moderna or Pfizer-type vaccine with that same mutation in, which should then allow you to raise antibodies to that particular configuration of spike. I mean, uh, we're getting into hypotheticals, but it's something that probably we do need to start thinking about. But presumably, in any case, the intention still is to eradicate this virus quite relatively quickly. Is, is that well? Eradication, eradication is a, going to be a very, very difficult goal with this virus. Um, I personally wouldn't expect that um, for many years, decades, possibly never. Um, there's two reasons for that. Um, one is, of course, that there could be still substantial animal reservoirs. We know this virus infects, for example, you know, mink very well. Um, it could be that there are wild animal reservoirs, you, you know, in, in difficult to monitor parts of the world that meant that you occasionally will simply get these kinds of outbreaks coming from those animals. It, it's, it, that's That's one sort of aspect to it. The other aspect is that we know that the other coronaviruses, and again, I said this in uh, articles in the past. The other coronaviruses do reinfect, usually after a, a, a couple of years delay in adults. So it may be that the vaccines, maybe, I stress we, we don't know this yet, uh, offer sort of more or less complete protection or very high degree of protection for a, a year or two. And then after a while, you need to be revaccinated. But you see, it, 
if what happened the second time you got the virus was that it was either incredibly mild or asymptomatic, you might not mind too much. I mean, it might be the, the case that you just try to get to a very high proportion of the population vaccinated. And then if they got reinfected, you expect them to have a mild infection. And, and then we don't worry about it too much. I mean, that's that's another scenario. Yeah, Because isn't there one theory that I read, and I can't remember where I read this, that the 18, there was a, appeared to be a flu pandemic mm. in the 1890s, around 1890. And there is a theory that perhaps it was actually, it wasn't a flu virus, it was a coronavirus that was novel then and is now an endemic coronavirus that causes the common cold. Yes, that, that, that's, that, that's, um, there's reasonable speculation about that for, for one of the other coronaviruses called OC43, which is one of the seasonal coronaviruses that we that we get. Usually you get sort of peaks of this approximately every other year. So yes, it, it's perfectly plausible that SARS-CoV-2 will evolve to be something, I say will evolve, will become, I don't mean evolve in the, in the necessarily in the, in the strict biological sense of that, will, will become a, a similar sort of circulating seasonal coronavirus. In, in fact, I think most virologists would view that as the most likely scenario going forward. So yes, I think that, that that's very plausible speculation. So as the as the World Health Organization, the WHO, and others have said, the the vaccine announcements don't mean the pandemic is over. It's not the end, but it may be the beginning of the end, and that's more or less what you you say in your piece as well. So it doesn't mean the end of social distancing or other preventive measures. It's one try to avoid these military metaphors, and, <laughs> and you write very amusingly about Boris Johnson's use of them and others, but. They're sometimes hard to avoid. If vaccination is one weapon in the arsenal in the fight against the virus and a massively powerful and important one, but it isn't enough in and of itself, is it, that we have to continue with social distancing, with wearing masks for the next few months? Well, the military metaphors seem to be almost as infectious as the virus. Uh, you're using them now, Tom, and I heard uh, Tony Fauci was, was, he was literally saying the cavalry coming, um, uh, you, you know, just a few days ago. The end of social distancing is is something which I think could happen when you've vaccinated a very substantial proportion of the population. So in that sense, uh, this is, the vaccination is an incredibly powerful weapon to the point where you would really expect to be back to more or less normal when you vaccinated, you know, the majority of the population, especially if you vaccinated the great majority of the vulnerable part of the population. Now, there's two difficulties with that. Well, three. One is, of course, that some people may refuse the vaccine. And, and, and I hope, you know, as many people as possible don't. I hope they take it up. So that's that's one concern. One is, of course, that you may simply not have enough manufacturing capacity of the vaccines, especially if some of the other vaccine candidates don't get approved with the same sort of speed as the Pfizer and uh, hopefully Moderna and AstraZeneca vaccines. And then, of course, you've got the logistics of delivering them. So you need all those sort of things to line up. And, and once you've got to that point, I think we really can talk about the end of social distancing. It would be the height of folly, stupidity in, in any sense, whether it's a military sense or, or any other, when you've got, you know, the end in sight to just sort of give up and say, oh, well, you know, let's go back to normal in advance of all this. Because whereas in, in March, you know, we didn't know that we'd have a vaccine. There was reasonable speculation that we probably would. But, you know, it could have been that this virus was incredibly hard to develop a vaccine against. Now we're in a situation where we know we've got a vaccine. In fact, more than one vaccine, very likely coming very shortly. 
So, you know, the sort of let it rip type strategy and, you know, gosh, I'm sorry type strategy, I think was a very bad strategy in March. It would now be, uh, I again, I'm struggling to find a, a bad enough metaphor to, to sort of uh, apply to it. It would be completely uh, wrong and totally crazy. So it, it's very important, and I hope now very obviously important, everyone maintains the maximum possible social distancing to to prevent spread of this virus in advance of the the vaccine arising because it's not inevitable that people will be infected it's 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 um something that we know we can do something about given enough time so yes military metaphor or no at the moment we need to be incredibly cautious and 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 wait for the vaccines to arrive yeah. so i mean are you are you worried about christmas leading to another surge yes in a word, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely worried about Christmas. You know, the weather's colder. We know that this is something which is likely to make the virus easier to spread. The national measures, the so-called lockdown that we've had, seem to have reduced the infection rates very substantially in some parts of the country, in the in the UK, the northwest, the northeast. Uh, they seem to have been less effective in, in London and the southeast. And uh, Wales, that I mentioned, had the actually rather effective and shorter lockdown period to coincide with with half term. Their their rates are now definitely increasing. So uh, we may well be in a situation where there have to be further measures introduced. If people sort of let their guard down over Christmas, you know, it really could be a very bad time because, you know, people naturally want to go and visit, you know, more elderly relatives and, and other circumstances quite right too. But under these circumstances, I think people need to exercise the absolute maximum caution and restraint because, you know, it would be a terrible shame to spread the infection just a few months before people could be vaccinated and could be really safe. So, yeah, worried about Christmas. And test and trace is still is ongoing and improving. And, you know, because that's the other very important. I mean, it's the way that South Korea, for example, yes. pretty much managed to suppress the virus. In the spring, well, it's definitely one aspect of what South Korea has been doing. Um, it, it's very hard sometimes to disentangle, you know, particular facets of what one particular country's response has been. Actually, it's something that, that I was sort of advocating towards the beginning. Is it, and, and perhaps a weakness in in the way in which we were analysing things here. I think we were trying to take things sort of point by point. You know, do masks work? Yes or no? Ooh, tricky one. You know, does testing and tracing work? Ooh, ooh, that's a tricky one. But but actually, if you can observe that a whole country's strategy is working, you might not know what exactly it is about that strategy that's making it effective. And maybe it's something you won't be able to copy. I mean, for example, if you have, you know, a situation where you've got very low population density in a country and there's just, you know, less contact between people, it's no good telling London to operate at a lower population density. That's not happening. <laughs> Um, but you you can learn not just from individual aspects of, of, of effective responses, but from as it were holistic aspects of of, of responses. Um, and it really wasn't just uh, testing and tracing in South Korea. I mean, there's also widespread mask using and a very effective uh, public health uh, campaign. And it must be said, also quite intrusive measures, which would um, erode um, sort of normal standards of privacy in the UK. So yes, what's happening with testing and tracing at the moment? Well, it does appear to be quite a lot more effective. Um, you know, I've had a look at the paper that uh, the preprint um, by the Economist, one from I think um, Harvard, one from Warwick, 
I mean, it's I'm not an expert in this field by any means, but you know, this is certainly a, a, a credible report that um, testing and tracing may, in fact, be really quite substantially effective in in the UK even in its sort of imperfect form. And then we're getting into these other approaches, the mass testing approaches and the sort of targeted testing of populations. Um, I I didn't mention it in the article, but of course there's been this recent effort in Slovakia to try and test at at a population level. And there's a preprint which is available today, again, suggesting that it's been reasonably effective actually in, in case finding and uh, then isolating those cases. And of course, if you don't do this kind of testing, you'll never pick up the asymptomatic cases, which we know are uh, a proportion, perhaps a substantial proportion of the spread. Yeah. And, and those approaches are certainly um, planned to be uh, implemented in the UK. There's been this uh, pilot in Liverpool. There have been announcements that this is going to be more widely available in the tier three areas. And then there's uh, sort of targeted screening Finally, we're getting sort of twice weekly screening of, of healthcare workers. This is a very good idea because it's not just that you want to prevent um, spread within the healthcare worker population. You, of course, really want to prevent the spread, uh, you know, from healthcare workers to uh, patients and care home residents. So I, I have some hopes that between these sort of three types of uh, of, of testing and, and subsequent tracing, you know, we may be in a, a better position than we would otherwise be in, but I don't think it's a panacea. I think that, you know, you, there will have to still be measures uh, to support social distancing. There will still have to be uh, widespread mask wearing where it's impossible or very difficult to, to stay apart. And uh, whereas I think it is possible we'll get all those things right uh, collectively, I'm not too convinced that we're really doing it brilliantly at the moment. I think there's still, we collectively as a population need to improve on all of these. Yeah. And the more you do, and in combination, and they all help. And yeah, nothing, nothing in and of itself, as you said earlier about the, the holistic approach. I mean, the, yes. I mean, this is sort of pure anecdotes, but what you're saying there, that in Italy, they do do weekly screening of health workers. And a friend of mine who's a doctor in Italy tested positive at work, so immediately went home self-isolated his whole family isolated his family got tested his wife and two of his three children tested positive the youngest one tested negative Mm. he's now tested negative so no symptoms any of them at any point he's gone back to work his two other children have gone back to school his wife is still having indeterminate test results and his suspicion is that his youngest child who has tested negative three times is probably the one who picked it up at school came home with it, they all caught it. And if he had not been having the weekly testing at the hospital where he works, they would never, none of them would ever have known that they had it. And presumably that thing, that that kind of spread is going on everywhere all the time and it's very hard to, to keep track of. Exactly, yes. An interesting question as to whether or not um, his his youngest child actually was the, were the index case. Not Not necessarily... There have been all sorts of claims about pre-existing immunity to this uh, condition, SARS-CoV-2, you know, and uh, it was almost a point at some point over the summer where sort of T-cells become became some sort of right-wing conspiracy theory, <laughs> um, that T-cells were going to come and save us and so on. I, I would say the one group where it is plausible, I won't go as far as to say likely, but where it is at least plausible that there is some useful degree of pre-existing immunity is is in is in children, so it's it's also possible that um, the youngest child was relatively protected, 
um, and, and and didn't get it for that reason. So that's that's another another possibility. Or it could just be exposure. I mean, you know, sometimes. Um, you know, there's a, a very sort of random stochastic element to an awful lot of this. And, you know, the attack rates, what we call the attack rate. So that's uh, within a household. So, so for example, that, that's the proportion of people that will get this given that one person has it um, is, is, you know, not that high. It varies from situation to situation, but, you know, it can be sort of 50 percent or less. Whereas with a disease like measles, where we know this is a you know incredibly uh, transmissible virus, the attack rate is nearly 100% for unvaccinated populations. So uh, it, it could be um, that the the youngest child sort of brought it in and cleared it, and then gave it to everybody else. It could be that that youngest child actually had a degree of immunity, or it could be that they simply weren't as exposed as you might naively have thought. So. You know the transmission dynamics are interesting and and perhaps complicated, but the fundamental point that if you don't test for it, you often won't find it because symptoms won't tell you everything you need to know is a very important one. Yeah, and it's obviously it's still, but all these aspects of it are still being studied, and those studies of the virus and the way it works will will be ongoing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and, and it, it will be quite difficult to disentangle some of these effects. And uh, you know, of interest to virologists, of interest to immunologists, and, and possibly of great interest if we have sort of further pandemics. But at the moment, I think we sort of know the way out of this one, which is by vaccination, and we know the way to get there, at least to an extent, which is via being very careful, being very cautious, by maintaining our two meters distance, by wearing masks if we can't. And of course, by by testing and, and tracing as much as we can in, in the best way that we can. So I, I think there's the the outline of a strategy there. It's now is a question of implementation. So you won't be going to any New Year's Eve parties this year. Uh, there, there, there'll be a purely internal to our household New Year's Eve party. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Rupert Bale. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Rupert's piece online now. The rest of the Christmas issue of the LRB will go online tomorrow, that's Wednesday the 9th of December, and the paper should reach subscribers soon after that, postal systems permitting. Other pieces in the issue include Perry Anderson on the EU, John Lanchester on Neanderthals, and Celia Paul, Painting in the Dark. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.